Well, welcome uh, once again to our study through Paul's letter to the Romans, and we are going to be working through Romans 3, verses 1 through 20 today, so you'll want to get your Bibles open or turned on uh, there and ready to go. Um, I have been, as I have told you before, a pastor for over 35 years now, and I really do love it. I'm so grateful God called me uh, to do this with my life, but I will tell you one of the things that I do not like about being a pastor is how some people don't act normal when I'm around. <laughs> and sometimes when I'm talking to a stranger, you know, we're just making a conversation and they, they say, you know, what do you do? Uh, well, weird things kind of happen. And I, I still remember back in Chicagoland when I was pastoring there, I'd answer a question like that. And several different times, I, I had people literally, physically shrink back like I had leprosy or the plague or something like that. They didn't want to get on them. And, you know, sometimes when people ask that question, I just don't want to tell them. And so sometimes I'll just say, I, I, I teach, I'm a teacher. And that's true. Um, or maybe sometimes I, I'd like to say, I sell insurance. <laughs> and they'll say, oh, what kind? And if they ask that question, I say, fire in life. <laughs> and you can think about that for a while. It'll come to you. And, you know, sometimes people, like, apologize for their language, for things they have just said. Like, you know, I've never heard those words before, and they, they will apologize, you know, to me for different kinds of things. And I'll say sometimes, you know, well, I appreciate this, but truth is, you, you aren't accountable to me. You're accountable to God. It gets real quiet if I say that. And, and that's exactly what Paul is showing us in Romans chapter 3 in the passage we're looking at today. If you go to the end of it, you'll see that he uses the phrase, the whole world is accountable to the God who sees all and who, who knows all. And that's where our text is headed. That's the conclusion of what we're going to see today. And if you will remember back through our series in Romans 1 through 3, like I've been telling you, Paul is just building out this argument for why everyone needs the gospel. And today, we're going to come to the conclusion of Paul's argument. And Paul has been making this case uh, throughout the ancient Mediterranean world at this point for 20 years now. And so he's very aware of the objections that people raise to the gospel. And so he is always answering the questions that people are asking. And if you'll remember back, he starts in Romans 1 by showing that all mankind has a problem, and that is this deep heart rebellion that corrupts everything, all of our actions, all of our relationships. And then in Romans 2, he anticipates an objection from religious people, particularly religious Jews, who would say something like, well, of course, of course, Paul, those Gentile pagans are messed up people, but not us. We were raised right. We have the temple. We have the word of God and the promises of God and the heroes of the faith. We're all different than them, Paul. And as we saw two weeks ago, if you were here in Romans 2, Paul shows that religion does not remedy our problem. In fact, in many ways, Paul would say it just makes it worse. And we kind of know this. Religious or moral people are prone to judge others and, and then to sometimes do the same things that they judge others for and they can be so blind to their hypocrisy. And religious people are often self-righteous 
and proud, and they're focused on external behaviors instead of true heart and, and life change. Religious people, they often think that God is on their side and that God favors them. But Paul says back in Romans 2, 11, for God shows no partiality. By the way, that's your second memory verse. I forgot to mention that to you a couple weeks ago, but uh, if you're memorizing some verses along the way, you can add that one. That's the easy one, okay? Uh, five words. And so uh, Paul says, God shows no partiality. And that means, he says, when you're just religious, it's not a good thing. He says, when religious people only obey God's outward commands without letting God change their heart, Paul says in Romans 2 that God's name is blasphemed in the world that God is disrespected, that God is dishonored because of God's people. And Paul concludes Romans 2 by saying what God is looking for is is people whose hearts change and whose lives show that change. And that's what we, we saw two weeks ago. And as we open Romans 3... Paul is still envisioning some of his, his Jewish hearers throwing up their hands at what he said and saying to him, then what's the point, Paul? What's the use of being religious? And what Paul is gonna do in the first eight verses of Romans three is answer their objections. And I, I wanna put these verses under this heading that we need to remember. He says that God is always faithful and fair, You should always know that no matter what happens in your life. God is always faithful and fair. See, before Paul gets to his concluding argument, uh, which we're gonna see in a few minutes to demonstrate that that all of us need the gospel, he answers a few more objections from his Jewish hearers. This is one more example. I told you a couple weeks ago about uh, this literary device called a diatribe. Paul does this again. And uh, you you may wanna know as you get into your study in your life group that chapter three, verses one through eight, a lot of commentators say this is uh, one of the most difficult section in in all of, of Romans. And it's because they're coming at it from probably a a different way than most of us would tend to think. But let's try to get in their their heads. It's It's like his Jewish hearers have been listening to what Paul has written in Romans 1 and then in Romans 2, and especially Romans 2. And it's like they kind of stand up and they're holding their Hebrew scripture scrolls and they say, well, wait a minute, Paul. Are you saying this is all worthless? Are you saying that it doesn't matter. Wasn't this inspired by God? And if God wrote these words, how can it not be valuable? Are you saying that all those stories of Abraham and Moses and and, and Ruth and David and, and Isaiah, that they just don't really matter? They were no benefit. If you put it in today's terms, we might say it's something like this. Are you saying that growing up in church and taking our kids to church and reading our Bibles and giving our tithes and, and serving you know, in, in ministry and, and living a godly life, that all is not valuable, that in the end it's all worthless, maybe even harmful? They're really asking the question, does religion have any value? And this is what Paul says in response, verses one and two, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Paul's answer, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, as we go through this passage, we're gonna see that Paul actually kind of gives a yes and a no answer. The yes comes here 
The no is gonna come in verse nine. And the yes is that it is valuable because the Jewish people had the privilege of possessing God's holy scriptures, those promises, but they come, Paul says, with a responsibility. And that responsibility was to love God and obey God and to live as a light to the nations. And God gave them the scriptures. Paul is saying, though, that their purpose was to point Israel and by extension, also us, to their need for Jesus. It wasn't given to them to, so they could learn how to live good lives for God. It wasn't given to equip them with techniques that would remove their need for God and his salvation. You see, all the commands and the rituals, all the stories that God gave, they were designed not to give you something to master so you could earn a good standing, good favor before God, but to bring you to the place where all you can do is cry out, I only have one hope, and that hope is God's grace. See, the rituals, the commandments should not lead anyone to pride in their accomplishments. All they should do is humble us and show us our need for grace. In verse three, Paul imagines his Jewish hearers responding to this by saying something like, but Paul, then if the law was supposed to lead us to Jesus, hasn't the law failed since so many Jewish people have not believed the gospel? That's behind verse three. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Paul responds in verse four, by no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Absolutely not, Paul says. He uses the strongest language possible. If he were a New Yorker, he would say, forget about it. You know, or maybe out here, get out of here, or no way, Jose, or something like that. He actually says, meganoito. That's the Greek, in case you were wondering what he actually said. Very strong language. Paul, Paul says, even if everyone's a liar, God's still faithful. And he next quotes from Psalm 51.4. You can look this up where, where David is confessing his sin with Bathsheba. And, and David says that God demonstrated God's faithfulness in judging David's faithlessness. And Paul is saying God has promised Israel in his covenant with them that he would judge them if they were faithless. It's all through the Old Testament. And God is so faithful, Paul says, that he took Israel's faithlessness and he turned it into an opportunity for the Gentiles to be saved. He he took his good news to people like us because of someone else's faithlessness. In other words, God is always faithful and fair. Well, then they say, verse five, If Israel's rebellion led to the Gentile salvation and that was all part of God's plan, then how could God still be mad at us, the Jews? (laughs) You know, didn't we just play our part? And Paul is saying this in verse five, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. And again, Paul says, meganoito, by no means. For then how could God judge the world. If you wanted to be real blunt about what Paul is saying, I think he would say, no, that's a stupid objection. He says, God will judge each person for their own unbelief and rebellion. Verses seven and eight ask the final question, but if through my lie, 
God's truth abounds to his glory. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come as some people slanderously charge us with saying, why not sin so that God gets glory? Paul wraps up his diatribe by saying their condemnation is just. In other words, this is absurd. This makes no sense. Now, one of the things that's operating kind of underneath the surface of these questions are some really weighty, heavy questions about God's sovereignty and, and human responsibility and how God sovereignly works through the freedom of human choices to accomplish his eternal purposes. These are very complex questions. Uh, Paul is actually, this is a preview of coming attractions, he's gonna spend three chapters in Romans 9 through 11 going into great detail uh, about what's underlying all this. But whether we understand it or not, Paul says, God is sovereign, but we're responsible always. God is sovereign, but we're always responsible. God always holds us accountable for our own choices, and that is fair, because God is always fair. But we must not forget the overall uh, larger point Paul is making, really, that goes from chapter 2, verse 1, all the, end, the way to chapter 3, verse 8, which is religion cannot make us right with God. Religion cannot save us. And, and I want to kind of slow down for a few moments here because sometimes people get confused about this. Sometimes people, they, they get confused when church people like Paul or maybe like me, you know, kind of rail on religion and they, they say, well, isn't Christianity a religion? And like Pastor Mike, isn't your job by definition a religious job because you work at a religious institution, a church? And, and the answer technically, of course, is yes. So then the question becomes, you know, why are you attacking religion? And, and it's because Paul, all through his writings, draws a distinction between religion and the gospel. Now, I'm gonna show you something uh, that is taken from Tim Keller's book, Center Church, that's a contrast between religion and the gospel. And I've, I've talked to you about some of these things a couple of times in the past, but this really gets to the heart of what Paul is driving at in Romans, where he's telling us there is the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation, and then there is this man-made substitute called religion, and they are not the same thing. And some of us here today don't understand this and are confused about this. They are not the same thing. And I think when, when, you, when you get this, it, it's gonna explain for you so many questions that you may have had about, like why are so many churches and so many people in church, like they don't seem to be very much like Jesus. You're gonna find some answers here. I wanna kind of go through this and there is a, gonna be a chart of things that come up and there's gonna be a lot of stuff on the screen. If you wanna take pictures, you can, but we have made um, a single sheet of paper that has everything out in the lobby. If you'd like to take it home and have it to look at later, uh, we have uh, some copies that you can do that with. But it starts here. Religion operates on this premise. I obey, therefore, I'm accepted. So if I obey enough, I get accepted by God. But the gospel turns that upside down. It's the only religious message in the world that says this, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. So you don't obey to be accepted. You 
obey because you're already accepted. In religion, motivation is based on fear and insecurity. If I do more, you know, God will bless me more and God will maybe let me into heaven. But the gospel says motivation is based on grateful joy. In other words, I obey just because God has changed me and I love him and I want to please him. Totally different. In religion... I obey God in order to get things from God. If I obey enough, surely he'll bless me. But with the gospel, I obey God to get God, to delight in God, to become like him. In religion, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I am angry at God or myself since I believe, like Job's friends, that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. I ask, what's wrong with you, God? Or what's wrong with me? But with the gospel, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle. But I know that while God may allow this for my training, he will exercise his fatherly love within my trial. See, I I know that my punishment fell on Jesus. So whatever is happening in my life, it's not that God is paying me back. And I can live knowing that his goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and that all things are working together for good. In religion... When I am criticized, you get criticized sometimes? I, I never get criticized. <laughs> when I'm criticized, I am furious or devastated because it is essential for me to think of myself as a good person. Threats to that self-image must be destroyed at all costs. But in the gospel, when I am criticized, I struggle, of course, but it is not essential for me to think of myself as a good person because my identity is not built on my performance, but on God's love for me in Christ because I know I already have the absolute approval of the only one whose opinion really matters. And so I can handle criticism from the rest of you people who don't really matter. (laughs) In religion, my prayer life consists largely of petition and only heats up when I am in need. My main purpose in prayer is to control my circumstances. Anybody saying, ouch, right now. But with the gospel... My prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration because my main purpose is fellowship with him. In religion, my self-view swings between two poles. If and when I am living up to my standards, I feel confident. But then I am prone to be proud and unsympathetic to people who fail. If and when I am not living up to standards, I feel humble but not confident. I feel like a failure. But with the gospel... My self-view is not based on a view of myself as a moral achiever. In Christ, I am simul justus et peccator, at once sinful and lost. That's what that Latin means, yet I'm accepted. I am so bad he had to die for me, and so loved he was glad to die for me. And this leads me to deeper humility as well as deeper confidence without either sniveling or swaggering. In religion, my identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work or how moral I am. So I must look down on those I perceive as lazy or immoral. I disdain and feel superior to others. But with the gospel, my identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for his enemies, including me. Say me. Only by sheer grace am I what I am. So I can't look down on those who believe or practice something different from me. And I have no inner need to win arguments. 
in religion, since I look to my pedigree or performance for my spiritual acceptability, my heart manufactures idols, my talents, my moral record, my personal discipline, my social status, etc. I absolutely have to have them. So they are my main hope, my meaning, my happiness, my security and significance. Whatever I say, I believe about God. But with the gospel, I have so many good things in my life, family, works, etc. but none of these good things are ultimate to me. They're good things, but they're not God things. I, I don't absolutely have to have them. So there is a limit to how much anxiety, bitterness, and despair they can inflict on me when they are threatened and lost. You see, that is the difference between religion and the gospel. The gospel, Paul says, is the message that since we could not save ourselves, God sent Jesus to die in our place and save us. And that is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And by contrast, religion is this main man-made substitute. It just doesn't fix the problem of our sin and actually in, instead it makes it worse. Because do you see, the core of our sin is pride and rebellion and independence from God. And religion caters to those things, do you see? And religion makes those things often worse. That's why everyone needs the gospel. And that's what Paul is trying to get across to us in those first eight verses. Now, in verses 9 through 20... Paul is really going to give us his conclusion for this entire section. And, and I want to sum it up like this if you're taking notes. Every one of us, Paul says, deserves God's righteous judgment. This is where Paul has been heading since chapter 1, verse 18. What's wrong with the human race? Is there something wrong with this world? Would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, you don't have to look really long, right? So what's wrong with the human race? So the answer, every person, Paul says, Gentile or Jew, pagan or religious, moral or immoral, is a sinner. Every person, a sinner who rebels against God in actions and words and thought, we sin by nature and we sin by choice. It is who we are. But Paul, wrapping up his argument because of that reality, draws this conclusion. He says, what then, verse nine, what then, the NIV actually translates two Greek words with this, what shall we conclude then? And it's an accurate translation. This is Paul's conclusion. Paul says, are we Jews any better off? And this time he says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, that's Romans one and Romans two, are under sin. So that's the conclusion. We all deserve God's righteous judgment. I want you to notice the language here. Paul says we are under sin. Paul sees sin as slavery. Sin sits on top of us and it controls us. It has us under its weight and its power. Paul says sin is slavery. And it's interesting today, most people see sin as freedom or fun. But Paul says, no, it's actually slavery. We're all slaves to sin apart from God's grace. We're all imprisoned in guilt and therefore we're all under judgment. And Paul wants to demonstrate that. And, and so what he does next is pretty remarkable. In verses 10 through 18, 
He, he gives the proof, and he does it through these different Bible verses, quoting from uh, the Old Testament. He, it begins, verse 10, as it is written. So Paul says, hey, I, I'm going to tell you why I'm saying this, and it's from your own writings, Jewish people, as it is written. He, he, he gives proof by quoting a lot of verses. He collects verse after verse. Uh, he's making like one charge after another after another. And it's all to show the depravity of our hearts. Uh, there's like 14 charges that come from probably Psalms and, and Isaiah and, and Ecclesiastes. And they're all designed to prove that unrepentant humanity is guilty. Guilty before God. You might write this down and just kind of think it through. It'd be a good thing to talk about maybe in your life groups. But these charges really come in three overarching categories. They have to do with our, our character, like who we are, and our words, what we say, and then our, our conduct, our actions, the things we actually do. And you're gonna see all of these kind of fit under those headings. Paul says, again, verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And Paul begins with a universality of sin. No one is righteous, no one is good, no one is acceptable to God. In other words, everyone needs the gospel. See, righteousness We've talked about this before. We're gonna talk about it a lot more. It is our legal standing before God. And Paul says sin has ruined our legal standing before God. Here's the thing. It doesn't matter how, how nice a person you are, how many good things you do, when all is known about all that you are, no one will be in a good place. Do you understand that? This includes, this includes the most righteous person, persons who've ever lived. Just make your list, Abraham and Moses, Mary, Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, your grandma. I mean, whoever you want to put on that list, when the secrets are exposed, it will be bad for everyone. Just, just think about this, okay? How would you feel if you had like a little monitor on the side of your head that just had all of your thoughts out there so anybody talking to you could see what you were thinking, like you wouldn't want me to be your pastor. <laughs> but I wouldn't want to pastor you so it all evens out, right? I mean, when all secrets are exposed, it's gonna be bad for everyone. And the day is coming, Paul says, when all records will be fully revealed, there will not be a good day for anyone. There is no one righteous, not even one. Verse 11 says, no one understands. No one seeks for God. Paul is saying that sin has corrupted our minds. We really saw this in, in Romans chapter one, how our self-centered hearts warp our ability even to perceive God. Paul says we suppress the truth. That's why God doesn't make sense to people who don't know him. I mean, just think of so many different examples. Just, just think of the person whose lust leads them to just take and, and to steal and to abuse and to wound and to destroy. And they're always looking for something that they never seem to find, but they keep doing what they do. And think of the greedy person 
the greedy person who steals and destroys and even kills so that they can get the wealth they think will make them happy. And yet they look around, don't they? They look around, the evidence is all around them that all the people who have all the things that they want, they're not happy and yet they keep chasing it. Just think of the bigot whose prejudice against a certain group of people causes him to look at everyone in that group in a distorted way and he puffs himself up in comparison to whatever he perceives those people to be. Our sin makes us distort and corrupt the truth about God. Now, postmodern philosophy is not on balance a good thing, I would say, but one of its biggest contributions to modern thought was its recognition that so much of of what we perceive is determined by the shapes and biases of our hearts. Two people can look at the exact same evidence and they can come to two entirely different conclusions. Why? Because of how they come at it based on their presuppositions. William James, again, not a philosopher whose thought I would recommend, uh, but very influential, wrote the book, The Will to Believe, a number of years ago. And he talked about what we believe, how it's determined by what we want to believe. And it's like, that's not new. Paul and Romans has been saying that for like 2,000 years. See, we distort the truth. And it's, see, it's not, it is not that our ignorance of God gives us hardness of heart. It is our hardness of heart that makes us ignorant of God. Sin warps our minds so that we are unable, naturally speaking, to understand the things of God. And because of this, Paul says, no one seeks for God. You might put under this, sin corrupts our wills how we make decisions. See, no one, naturally speaking, even wants to know God. We we all run from him. Now, at this point, maybe some of you are thinking, and maybe you're saying, well, wait a minute, but surely, like, this is going too far. You know, Paul's like preaching. No, you preachers, you tend to overemphasize and exaggerate things sometimes. No one seeks God. Man, I, I know people who aren't Christians, and they don't go to church, and boy, they are sincerely seeking for truth. And what about people from other religions? I, I, I know some very sincere Muslims who are really passionate about knowing God. Well, Paul isn't saying that no one seeks spiritual things. He isn't saying that no one wants to connect to the supernatural. He is, however, saying that no one prompted by their own decisions, acting out of their own ability, wants to actually find God, at least the true version of who God is. See, people may seek God to get blessings from him, Or they may seek a reshaped God who conforms to their needs and who serves their agendas, but that's different from seeking the true God for his own sake. And that's true about all of us. Apart from God's regenerating grace, we flee from God even as we may think sometimes that we are seeking him. And by the way, by the way, this means that anyone who is truly seeking God only does so because God has first sought them out and they are being sought by God. Jesus says this in John six forty four: no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. We don't seek God in and of ourselves and And that should be good news. Like if you're here today and you're actually truly seeking God, it should encourage you because it means that God is seeking you. 
And if God is seeking you, he's gonna find you and you're gonna find him. And maybe for some of you, that might just make sense as I say it because you can see what I'm talking about in the questions that he has put in your heart, in the struggles of your life, in the emptiness that you feel, maybe, maybe even in the joys that, that you experience and you know those joys are calling you to something that is beyond anything you can find in this world. You see, apart from God's regenerating grace, verse 12, all have turned aside Together they have become worthless. I want you to notice this. Maybe write this down and think about it. Sin has a direction. It always has a direction. We don't seek for God. Paul says we turn aside, away from God. We try to get away from God so that we can go our own way. Frank Sinatra used to sing that song, right? I did it my way, but that's not just the song of sin atra. <laughs> that is the song of sinners. That's the song of sinners. We all do it our way. Isaiah 53, 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, right? We have said, every one of us, in our sin, I did it my way. We didn't choose Yahweh. We chose our way, my way, which is always the wrong way. It's kind of interesting that in Acts 9, verse 2, we are told that Christianity was originally called the way. See, if you're not in the way, you're going the wrong way because Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. See, Paul is just telling us, and you need to understand this, by ourselves, we will go the wrong way. It's the essence of sin. We prefer our way to God's way. And it is this lie, this central lie that has motivated and fueled our rebellion since the Garden of Eden. We think we know better than God, right? That's the lie that echoes in the heart of every teenager and college student, young adult. I think my way is probably better than God's. God doesn't really understand all that I need and all that I want, so I know my way. I'm smarter really than God, and it continues this lie to whisper in the hearts of businessmen and, and businesswomen in their quest for ambition, in the hearts of husbands and wives dissatisfied with their marriages, in the hearts of homeschoolers and CEOs and retirees who think the rest of life is only supposed to be about them, my way, better than God's. The lie. Paul next says, together they have become worthless. Aren't you glad you came today? Just keeps, just keeps getting better here. <laughs> this doesn't mean that humans have no value because we know God sent his son to die for us, right? This is talking about spiritual eternal worthlessness apart from God. Let me just say to you, if you don't know this yet, one of the reasons we want you to come to Jesus is so you don't waste your life. 
because God has created you with worth. But you only find that worth when you, when you live for him. And he goes on to say, there is no one, no one does good, not even one. And again, you might be like, well, this surely seems kind of like an overstatement. No one who does good. Like what about, what about the Marine, you know, who's not a Christian and doesn't believe in God, but throws himself on a grenade like to save his buddies. That's still a good deed, isn't it? What about the mom who sacrifices everything to get her kids out of poverty and she's not a, a Christian? Aren't those good things? Well, in one sense, we would say yes. But in the ultimate sense, we need to know how the Bible looks at those good things. Two things, let me comment about. These aren't gonna be on the screen, but number one, the Bible considers a deed good only if it is pure in both form and motive. See, if you do good deeds to try to bolster your self-image or your reputation or to try to earn your standing before God, those deeds are inherently selfish and they're not really good, even if on the surface they are good. I mean, we know what this is about, right? I'm gonna ask you to raise your hands on this. You ever had someone like be really nice to you, but you figure out as you're talking to them, they're only being nice to you because they're trying to get something out of you? Like, right? Is being nice good? Oh yeah, but really? See, if we are doing good so we'll get something out of God, blessing or eternal life or whatever, then that is an inherently selfish motive. Second reason that apart from faith in God, even our good deeds are not good is that in light of our biggest sin, which was replacing God's authority in our lives with our own authority. In light of that, the good things we do really aren't that good. You say, what do you mean? Well, let me illustrate it this way. Let's say that there's this guy and he's committing adultery. He's cheating on his wife and he goes to the hotel where he's gonna carry out as an affair. And as he checks into this hotel where he's gonna be unfaithful to his wife and he's gonna destroy the lives of his kids, as he checks in, he gives the bellhop this really generous tip. Now, generosity is a good thing. Who votes that generosity is a good thing? Like, go ahead, stick your hands up. It's not a trick. (laughs) It is. It's good to be generous. But you know this, in this case, in the light of of the wickedness of his unfaithfulness, how good is that really? And here's the real question. What if our rebellion against God was the same in God's sight but a billion times worse? What if throwing yourself on a grenade for someone else in light of our cosmic treason was sort of like tipping the bellhop Because you think about it, because we are cosmic traitors, rebels against God, it's hard in light of that to call even our good things good. You say, but but Oprah says I'm special and precious (laughs) and beautiful. Well, you are. In one sense, that's part of the paradox of the human race. You are a beautiful person made in the image of God, but at the same time, the Bible says you've been ruined by sin, and the ruin of sin is greater than the beauty of your creation. 
Jonathan Edwards said, the slightest sin has an infinite amount of hatefulness in it, enough to outweigh whatever loveliness the creature possessed. Blaise Pascal, the French uh, Christian philosopher, a couple centuries ago, wrote this, once said, what a contradiction is man. On the one hand, judge of all things. On the other, a stupid worm. A depository of truth and a sewer of error and doubt. The glory and the refuse of the universe. I'm just waiting to find that on a Hallmark card. You can send to somebody, but it's so true. Look at verses 13 and 14. Paul goes, and now he's talking about our words. He says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And bitterness. Our, our corruption, don't you know this? It most often reveals itself in our words. Jesus said that the things we say in private are the best indicators of what's going on in our hearts. Amen? We know it, but we don't like it. Consider your words just from this last week. Our words, Paul would say, carry about them the stench of death. Jesus once said that by our words alone, it's enough to condemn us. Verses 15 through 17, he goes on to talk about actions. Their, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they, they have not known. I mean, do I even need to elaborate on this, right? I mean, anyone looking around sees the violence of our, our world. And even with our modern technology and all the advancements that we have achieved, people still readily shed blood and abuse people and wound people and tear people down. And the capacity to hurt and kill and destroy is within every single one of us. Paul says... The world tries to sell sin as something that's fun. But it always ends up, doesn't it, in ruin and misery and death. Paul says sin never brings peace. He then sums it all up in, verses eight, in verse 18 when he says there is no fear of God before their eyes. We do not recognize God's goodness or God's importance in our lives. No fear of God means that God and God's authority just not a big deal. We're more interested in our plans, our agenda, what we want. That's what is most important to us, not what God wants. And Paul says, that's your heart. That's the heart of every single one of us apart from Christ. Now here's Paul's conclusion to everything that he's been talking about since chapter one, verse 18. This is uh, verses 19 and 20 of Romans three. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. I could preach a whole sermon on this, but I'm not going to. You're welcome. He says, every mouth stopped. I wanna talk about that some more next week, I think. But this, just for today, this means we have no excuses. You just need, some of us just need to shut up. 
the whole world accountable to God. That word accountable means liable. It's a judicial word. It means liable for punishment. And what he's saying is no matter who you are, no matter your life record, no matter whether you've lived a life of compassion and service or a life of cruelty and exploitation, we're all alike. We're all condemned. We're all lost. We all deserve to be rejected by God. And, and Paul is saying that's the purpose of the law, to reveal sin, not, not to correct sin. That's what the law was about. It was supposed to function like a, a mirror that we look at, and, and it reveals to us as we look at it how sinful we are. Side note, do you know what so many of us do with the law, God's law? We turn the mirror around, and we use it to look at other people, Okay? That's called religion. That's called hypocrisy. Back to what Paul's saying here. The, the law is a mirror. And it's supposed to reveal our hearts to us. We see when we look at it what our hearts ought to be. We see what our hearts are not. You know, for example, commandment number nine, you shall not lie, shows me that I should love honesty so much that I'm never tempted to lie, even when doing so would gain me some advantage. Commandment number seven, do not commit adultery, shows me that I'm supposed to love purity so much that my, any sexual desire that I have for someone else besides my spouse is outweighed by my love for God and by my love for God's purity and for doing things God's way. Commandment number 10, you shall not covet, shows me I'm supposed to be so satisfied in God and all that God's given me, so trusting of his plan for me, his provision for me, that I don't get jealous and I don't get mad when someone else has something that I want. See, but when I read those commands, I, I think my heart is not like that. That's not my heart. And that's what Paul means. Knowledge of sin comes through the law. The law shows me how messed up and spiritually rotten my heart is, throat like an open grave, as he said very earlier. That's what he's talking about. Uh, last fall, I mentioned this once before, I got an MRI. It costs a lot of money to get an MRI. And you know what? It didn't fix anything. I paid all that money, it didn't do a thing, right? Well, you say, well, Pastor Mike, you may be a doctor, but you're not this kind of doctor. You know, the kind of doctor that actually counts. Um, uh, if you knew, if you were, you'd know that MRIs don't fix anything. They just show what's wrong, exactly. That's what the law does. It, it just shows us what is wrong. It just reveals the problem. It has no power to fix it. Um, and, and you see, forcing ourselves to act righteous doesn't just change our hearts. It's, it's like just covering it up. The, it's like covering up the corruption. Maybe think of it like this. You ever opened up your fridge and in the back you go, oh, there's something back there and it's this Tupperware container and you don't know what it is and you open it up, right? And it's like, I don't know, a piece of chicken and you think, how long has that been in there? Which is always a bad question to ask. And, and you look at this chicken and there's like this little forest of green and black things that are just growing out of the piece of chicken. Now, how many of you looking at this and smelling this would say, you know, I'm pretty hungry and the problem here is 
there's not enough heat and spice on this chicken right here. I'm going to put some sriracha on that. And if I put enough, I won't be able to smell it and I won't be able to taste the rotting meat anymore. Ugh. See, that's what the law does. It kind of sweetens up your behavior without changing your heart. And God created us to be so naturally righteous in our hearts, we wouldn't need a law to do what is right. We'd instinctively do it. And we know this, don't we? We don't need laws to do the things that we love. I don't need that. You don't have to command me to kiss my wife or hate the Dodgers, (laughs) which... It's okay, biblically speaking. You say, What's, you can't hate. No, the Bible says many times to hate that which is evil. And so <laughs> it's right there in the word of God. But see, I, I, I love to do those things. There's no law required. The law is only required where my heart wants to go the wrong direction. See, while, now, while I'm talking about gross things, uh, and, and you're welcome to all the junior high boys uh, that are in the room and all the men who are, Secretly junior hires at heart, I, I see you. Um, I have another illustration of what I'm talking about here, okay? And some of you are going to love this. The rest of you just keep quiet and listen. I want you to imagine that right down here, okay, on the floor, right in front of the stage, someone has just thrown up. There's this big, warm, pile puddle of vomit, Right? Um, There is not one person of you here that needs me to command you, do not come down to the front of the auditorium right here and lick up this vomit. (laughs) Right? Am I right? I mean, you know, I, I don't need to say, look, people, I'm serious now. We have a rule at Southwinds. No licking up other people's vomit. That's a rule at our church. You don't, we don't have a, a rule like that, right? We have a lot of first responders here. I don't need to get a couple first responders to stand around the vomit and fight people off who are trying to get to the vomit so they can lick the vomit, right? Don't need that to happen. Not one of you needs to hear anything like this. Amen? Unless you're a dog. If you are a dog, then we do need to make rules for you because you're like nice, warm vomit. Mmm. Half-eaten hot dog. Bonus. You're going to be down there licking it up. See, the law is like the first responders, keeping, keeping the dog away from eating the vomit it wants to eat. And see, God does not want spiritual dogs in heaven who want to eat the vomit of sin and who only stay away from it because they are afraid of punishment. God wants people in heaven with his heart who wouldn't choose sin even when they had the opportunity to choose it. He's not just after obedience. He's after our hearts, a whole new kind of obedience, the obedience that grows out of a changed heart, the obedience that only the gospel, the good news of God's righteousness that he has given to us as a gift to all who would believe believe in Jesus' son, God's son, Jesus, God's son, who died on the cross and rose from the tomb so that we could be alive. That righteousness is what God wants in our heart. That's the gospel, friends, and that's our only hope. Now, 
Here's a sneak preview from next week, and I'm just gonna tell you, you don't wanna miss it, because next week we start the good news. We've been hearing the bad news in Romans, but next week we start the good news. And I just want you to listen. Maybe close your eyes and hear these words. This is Romans 3, 21 uh, through 25. Paul writes, this is what we're gonna talk about next. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That's the good news, friends. One commentator says this is the epicenter of Paul's gospel. And another commentator says this is possibly the single most important paragraph that has ever been written. And we're going to study it. We're going to look at it to see what Paul is telling us. And let me sum it up for today and for next week this way. Paul is telling us that our sin is so much worse than we have ever imagined. But now, our salvation that God has given us in his son Jesus is so much more amazing than we have ever dreamed. That's called good news. And God's people say, amen. amen. This is God's word for us today. Would you bow your heads as we pray? Father God, we, we give you thanks, Lord, for the hard truths that make up the bad news because, Lord, we know that only when we see the bad news can we truly experience the good news. And so, Lord, our prayer is that our hearts would be humble before you, that our mouths would be silent before you, that we would see that you are God and there is no other and all we can do is fall on our faces and ask for your mercy. But Lord, we, we can do that confident in knowing that you will give mercy because you sent your son and Jesus has died and Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins so that you might give to us the gift of his righteousness by grace, by faith, Thank you, Father, and we ask that you would change hearts. We pray all these things now in the name of your son, Jesus the Christ, and all of God's people say.